Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today, we're going to be talking about what to do when you first begin to realize that you may be infertile. The title is, So You Think You May Be Infertile? Now What? And the timing of this show is not accidental. This week is National Infertility Awareness Week. And we are sharing, we mean Creating a Family, is sharing info all week long on our social media networks about all things infertility, from uh, what to do at the very beginning, how to, how to, how to access care, uh, as well as how to advocate for uh, infertility treatments. And you'd be surprised at the number of, of challenges that are existing to the availability of infertility treatments, and we are going to be uh, posting about that all week long as well. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. There's certainly more safety data on Clomid because we've been using it in clinical practice for 60, 70 years. Um, so there's a lot of evidence that it's safe to use when trying to get pregnant. Uh, Famara has been used probably 10 or 15 years, so there's less safety data, but it's also got a shorter half-life. It's in your system less time. By the time you ovulate, it's out of your system. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Nonprofit, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. One of the things we do here at Creating a Family is produce multimedia guides that will help you uh, along your journey, and one that I really think you will like is How to Choose an Infertility Clinic. It is full of resources uh, over 40 pages of resources, questions, uh, information uh, to help demystify the process of beginning fertility treatment. I think you will really enjoy that. Uh, the way to get to it is you go to our website, creatingafamily.org, hover over the word resources, and click on eGuides, and it will take you right there. We're a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model. That way you can listen whenever and wherever you want, and you can also subscribe to the podcast to get notice of each new episode on whatever your listening device of choice might be, be it your phone, your tablet, or your computer. So to get more information, uh, you can go to our website and click on the uh, resources and then a radio show, and we can give you information about how to subscribe if you don't know. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring recently launched My Fertility Navigator, which offers free one-on-one support for women who are struggling to get pregnant and are unsure where and how to begin their fertility journey. Once enrolled in My Fertility Navigator, women will receive personalized guidance from a live, dedicated fertility navigator. And in fact, one of those navigators is going to be on today's show. And this navigator can help provide important information about fertility, including providing lists of nearby fertility centers, information about financial resources, and discuss the many fertility treatment options that are available. To get more information about this really important and free resource, you can go to myfertilitynavnav.com slash N-I-A-W. Let me give that to you again, myfertilitynav.com slash N-I-A-W. And if you're wondering N-I-A-W stands, what it stands for, that's National Infertility Awareness Week. So that's your, uh, that's your, uh, uh, your cue to kind of figuring out uh, how to remember that, uh, that URL. Uh, this show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not and would not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. 
Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility with 10 offices and 21 physicians throughout New Jersey. They maintain an IVF delivery rate above the national average. We also have IntegraMed. IntegraMed is the largest network of fertility practices in the country. They combine the latest innovations in reproductive science with compassionate and customized treatment plans and are able to provide the very best possible care. Today, we're going to be talking about, so you think you may be infertile, now what? What to do when you first begin to realize that getting pregnant is not going to be as easy as you thought. We have a panel of people today. Our first is Dr. Julie Lamb. She is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist with Pacific Northwest Fertility. We also have Samantha S., a nurse with My Fertility Navigator, and Lisa Park. She is an infertility patient. Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Thanks for having me, Don. Yes, thank you so much. We're glad to be here. Good. Hey, Lisa, I want to start with you, because if there's really an expert in infertility, let's be honest, it's got to be the patients, or at least an expert on certain aspects. Uh, and uh, although you are not, I don't think, actively in, uh, you, you may be a little past your journey. Uh, actually, I'm not sure if you are past your journey. But if you are, uh, if you could remember back, what I wanted to ask you is you could tell us a little about your your entry into infertility and, and what you what, when did you realize there was a problem and what were the first steps you took when you finally figured out that there that this whole idea of getting pregnant was not going to be as easy as you had thought? Sure. So I kind of had a heads up. There's been a suspicion that I'd had endometriosis for several years. Um, so when my husband and I first started trying, um, we started right away, and when things weren't, I think, I guess we were about six months in when we started thinking maybe we should look into this further because my gynecologist had said, you know, I, I went and said that we're going to get pregnant. What should I be doing? Should, you know, can I have, like, a checkup? And she said, you know what, even if you have endometriosis, most women with endometriosis get pregnant no problem, so go forth, have a baby, and send me a picture. So. Once we got into about the six, seven-month mark, we thought maybe we should look at things a little bit farther, and I guess we were about nine months in um, when I first saw a reproductive endocrinologist. Um, so there was a, there's a fertility clinic right across the street from my office. Um, so really, I just handy. started there. Yeah, yes. it was convenient, and that's where I went because, um, like I said, my gynecologist had said, go have a baby, and she was not an OBGYN. She was just a gynecologist. Um, so we started there. Um, we started the brief brief overview as we did three IUIs. We've done three fresh IVFs, two frozen transfers, and there was a surgery in there that did confirm the endometriosis. Um, I do have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Um, she is the result of our third fresh IVF cycle. Um, so basically that's how we got started. I did need a push. Um, it, it was, even though I knew there was probably something wrong, it still was hard to get to the point where I was ready to ask yeah. for help. Well, or to really acknowledge, you know, that there are so many misconceptions about infertility and, and infertility treatment. And so I think a lot of people need a push because you're fighting against misconceptions. Samantha, you're a fertility navigator, which means you're talking with people who were uh, at the stage that Lisa was was way back when. Um, what are some of the common misconceptions that you hear from people who are who are at that stage where they're needing either the push to get into treatment or really don't even know that treatment is available, perhaps? Absolutely, and thank you so much for asking. You know, there are a lot of myths that are out there, and probably one of the most common ones that we hear is that infertility is always caused by the female, and that's just simply not the truth. Infertility is caused only about a third of the time by the female, and another third of the time it's caused by male infertility factors, and yet another third of the time it's caused by either a combination of male and female factors, or it's simply unexplained, and we really don't don't know what's causing the infertility. And another, um, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. And then sometimes it's subfertility in both uh, partners where, you know, if, if either of them was with a more fertile partner, they, they might not be experiencing the problem. Yeah, you're exactly right. 
Yes. And then, uh, you know, there's another common um, myth that you should wait a year before you see a doctor about infertility. And that's not true, especially if you're over the age of 35. Uh, really, if you've been trying for six months and you're over the age of 35, then you should definitely go see a physician. Or if you just have, if you suspect that something's going on, you know, like in your case where you were, you knew you had endometriosis, or if you right. perhaps have been told that you have polycystic ovarian syndrome or any other condition that could affect your fertility, then it's really never too soon to go and see your physician and see about uh, fertility treatments. That is, that is absolutely true. And that leads into a question we got from Louisa. And her question has to deal with how to tell the status of your fertility. Okay, so Dr. Lamb, this is going to be for you. And uh, let me read Louisa's question. She said, not sure if this fits exactly into the topic of the show since I don't actually think I may be infertile, but that's the point. How do I know? I'm 33, and for a number of reasons, I'm not ready to start my family, including that I'm not married or even in a relationship, and that I've just started my dream job and need to devote at least a couple of years to getting established. I do, however, someday want kids. Is there a test that can kind of give me a read on where I stand with my fertility so that I can make good decisions? And, she says, before your guests say freeze my eggs, I've listened to your shows on egg freezing, so I'm aware of that option. But if my eggs are good right now, and I think I could could try naturally in a couple of years, I'd rather do that than spend the money on freezing my eggs with no good guarantees that I can get enough and that it would work. All right, so Dr. Lamb, um, Louisa is not alone in this, uh, uh, particularly at the age she's 33. Um, is there a test? Is there a way to kind of uh, uh, tell Samantha is saying that if we know that we, we might have problems, that we should not wait the, the recommended one year or six months, depending on our age. But if you've been using birth control, how do you know there might or might not be a problem? Well, Don, that's an excellent question, and I don't think that there's a perfect answer for it. No, um, there's no test that tells you whether you can or cannot get pregnant. There are tests that tell us kind of where you are in that fertility window. But, um, and those tests are like the AMH and the FSH blood tests that can be done. Um, but it's really difficult to interpret those, especially in a patient that's not currently trying to get pregnant. There's no test that says, yes, you should freeze your eggs or no, you should not, or yes, mm-hmm. you will have difficulty getting pregnant or no, you will not. And it's a discussion. Each patient's an individual, and it's meeting with a fertility specialist and discussing um, what those tests mean for them and what other factors in their life and um, just like kind of a complete history and physical and looking at their ovaries and looking for things like polycystic ovarian syndrome and looking for things like endometriosis, um, like Lisa brought up earlier, um, that really help us get a picture of the individual and where she is in that fertility window and help start that discussion about what her options are. And I think knowing those options is what's really empowering for women and things like this fertility navigator help connect patients with what their options are and what those tests are and help them find a provider that can answer some of those questions that they have. And and for someone like Louisa who is 33 and at best it sounds like she wants to wait a couple of years so that would put her 35 or 36. Is this something that you would recommend Dr. Lamb that she should be looking into at her age? Or should she just wait until she's 35, 36, and when she's getting ready, when she wants to start? That's a great question, Don. I bet you could ask a lot of different people and get a lot of different answers. I think it's never too <laughs> early. It's, yeah, it's never too early to start investigating your fertility and trying to understand where you're at. Certainly in the setting of endometriosis, there's some indications to look sooner, and endometriosis is certainly one of them. Certainly fertility changes quickly with age, and people intend to start in a couple years, and all of a sudden it's been 10, and that's what I see. So if they have an inkling that it's probably a good time, then that gut is probably good, and they should go with it and at least learn more about, about where they are in that fertility window by talking to someone. Exactly, and, and and just one other thing, and even though Louisa at this point is, seems to be certain that she doesn't want to freeze her eggs, if she might change her mind after having talked with a reproductive endocrinologist uh, to assess where she, you know, her fertility and where she stands in her her fertile window, um, and if you're going to freeze your eggs, 
and this show is not on egg freezing. But if you are going to freeze your eggs, sooner is better than later, or that's certainly what the research is indicating now. So that's another reason for the Louisa's out there to consider at least getting more information at at her age. Right, or if she did have... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. If she was found to have something like endometriosis, there's things that she can do to protect her fertility from the effects of endometriosis, Mm -hmm. even if she decides not to freeze her eggs. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, yeah. And PCOS as well, Um, you know, losing weight or doing some of the other things that might be helpful to maximize uh, or prolong her fertility for as long as as she can so she does have the option uh, when she is ready. And if she finds out that her fertility window is shorter, she might decide um, to try sooner. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah. All right. A question that we get a lot here at Creating a Family uh, is who should someone see first when they've been trying without success for a year or thereabouts if they're under 35 or six months if they're 35 or over? Now, Lisa, it's actually a little unusual because she went straight to a reproductive endocrinologist. But more people, we hear far more often that people um, are, are questioning whether they should go to their gynecologist, which quite frankly is where more people end up at the, their first appointment, or should they go straight to an infertility clinic. So Dr. Lamb, what do you recommend for, for someone who is at this point thinking that they probably are going to have problems? Should they just go straight to a reproductive endocrinologist, or which would be found at an infertility clinic, or can they start with their gynecologist? That's a good question, Don. There's not a right answer. Certainly, Lisa wasn't finding the um, answers that she wanted from her gynecologist, so she did the right thing. She, like, um, sucked like suck out care with a reproductive endocrinologist and that's always okay we're always happy to see patients that haven't seen their gynecologist or haven't started their workup some uh, some OBGYNs feel really comfortable ordering that initial uh, testing for fertility and the semen analysis and some of the tube tests and some of that initial testing and others just don't feel comfortable and will send patients right away so it's really the patient's choice Well, okay, we had a question from Casey, and she said, can I save money by having some of the testing done at my gynecologist? Uh, She does not mention uh, whether or not she has insurance, uh, so that's something. But um, so does it make sense to have some of the initial testing done at your gynecologist to save money, or is is it going to be one of those situations that when you go to the RE, to the infertility clinic, they're going to say, well, we want to do our own testing anyway, so you're just paying double for it? Dr. Lamb? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it really depends on the fertility clinic. You know, at Pacific Northwest Fertility, we bill insurance just like an OBGYN does. So if your insurance is going to cover your initial testing, they cover it dep- um, no matter who's ordering it, whether it's your OBGYN or it's me as a reproductive endocrinologist. Um, oftentimes when patients are paying cash for things, we have access to tests for lower costs. So sometimes that that's helpful for patients. Um, there's different you know, when patients um, have no insurance, um, there's more affordable blood tests we can do. We've arranged to do HSGs at lower cost for patients that have to pay cash. And there's resources like that that an OBGYN might not necessarily have access to. Okay, excellent. So let's say that you have made the, the decision that you want to go to a, uh, a, an infertility clinic. I assume if you're going to go to a gynecologist, you probably already have one. So, But if you're going to go to an infertility clinic, um, Samantha, uh, how do people access and find a fertility clinic if they're not so lucky as Lisa was to have one literally next door? That's a great question, and that is one of the services that we offer through the My Fertility Navigator program. We are happy to help our participants find one that's near us, and we typically take our participants to one of our websites, and we are one. We help them find one that's nearest to them. So we don't advocate for one clinic over another. We just want to help them find one that's nearest to them and one that's, that they're comfortable with. And so we have one of our resources that we do is a locator. And so we help our participants to find this locator, and we take them through it, and we, we take the top three to five, depending how many they want to access, 
and then we help them to call them and to make their initial appointment, and that helps them to really be able to find one that they're most comfortable with and make their first initial appointment. And then that way, when they are um, reaching out to these clinics, they really feel like they have the option, and so they're able to not just have one that they call and feel like they have to go to this one clinic, but they have several different options that they're able to go to. And so that's, um, that's one of the things where we don't want to feel like these patients are being told, you have to go to this clinic. They really have several different options that they can go to, and that way they're working to see if the clinics accept their insurance, if they have insurance, and they're also able to look and see if these clinics have different financial resource options to see if um, they have different packages just in case their insurance isn't accepted there, and they're also able to see if the clinics offer different um, financial aid packages. Some clinics will, will say, you know, we have uh, a package where if you p purchase three IVF cycles, then it's a discounted rate. Um, and so different, different things like this. So we offer a couple different, um, different clinics for these women to contact to see which one they want to go to. And so um, when, when we're helping these women to locate their clinic, rather than just telling them this is the clinic that's closest to you, that's the one that you should go to, um, we want them to be able to have the option to finding the clinic. Does that yeah, make sense? I think it makes great sense, and I think options. Infertility is a very unempowering disease, and uh, it, it really helps, I think, to anytime we can give patients power um, and choices. I, I think that's good. Let me also put in a plug for, again, for our multimedia guide, uh, for choosing a fertility clinic or doctor. One of the things, we do provide lists of questions to ask, and one of the things that's particularly helpful, I think, is uh, we walk uh, people uh, graphically with, uh, with graphics through the um, uh, SART statistics, the IVF success statistics, uh, and help people uh, assess, uh, help people figure out how to read those stats and which stats are really the most important ones for them at this stage, that type of thing. So I think that's really that's a helpful resource for people uh, who are trying to figure out. And, again, you can access that at our website, creatingafamily.org. Hover over resources and click on e-guides. Dr. Lamb, one of the first things most gynecologists do, and also many REs if it hasn't already been done, they will prescribe, depending, of course, on the diagnosis or the suspected diagnosis, and oral fertility medications such as clomiphene citrate, brand name Clomid, or uh, letrozole, brand name Femera. How do these medications, these oral medications, work to increase the odds of getting pregnant? I think everybody's heard of them, and a lot of people believe that this is it's the magical pill that you take. You, you take your Clomid or your Femera, not as well known, but you take it, and and it's going to uh, kind of magically get you pregnant. How do these meds work? That's a great question, Don. I think that's um, a huge resource that the Fertility Navigator is providing is just telling patients that there are some simple oral medications. I think there's a common misconception that everything we do is expensive, and there's some really simple things like these oral medications that help patients get pregnant that are very inexpensive and very successful. So specifically for these medications in um, patients that are anovulatory or not releasing an egg every month, they help the patient ovulate. So I, it's so common to see patients try for a year without seeking care and not having access to care and come and see me, and they just haven't been releasing an egg. They're not necessarily infertile. They're just not releasing an egg every month. So these medications, the Clomid or what you rec the uh, letrozole, um, are ovulation induction agents that help a patient release an egg. If a patient's already releasing an egg, it helps make that process a little more perfect. Um, it helps increase the cells around the egg um, that increase the hormones naturally to make the lining thicker and sustain the pregnancy. So they're used in combination with either timed or intercourse or IUIs, to help, uh, which is an intrauterine insemination, to help patients achieve pregnancy. We got a question from Suzette. She wants to know which is safer, Clomid or Femera. And also, she says, which one is most effective at getting me pregnant? I'm going to guess that that's not going to be an easy <laughs> answer. Or you're not going to be able to point to 
one or the other. But let's let's talk about both of them. Which one is safer? And sure. when you answer that one, if you would also talk about the risk of multiples, uh, because I think that would fall in the safer category. All right, so let's start with our first question. Sure. Which one is safer? Sure. So there's certainly more safety data on Clomid because we've been using it in clinical practice for 60, 70 years. Um, so there's a lot of evidence that it's safe to use when trying to get pregnant. Uh, Femara has been used probably 10 or 15 years, so there's less safety data, but it's also got a shorter half-life. It's in your system less time. By the time you ovulate, it's out of your system. So there's safety data, but just not as much as Clomid. Um, as far as efficacy and success rates, they're very similar success rates. What I really like about Femara is it helps us achieve pregnancy with one healthy baby at a time. It has a little bit lower chance of twins than the Clomid does. So Clomid's chance of twins if you get pregnant from a cycle is about 8%, and Letrozole or Femara is about 5%. Okay, yeah, and that is and, something that is important for us to keep in mind. Yes. Yeah. Twins are not the preferred outcome if we can if we can right. help it. Yeah, excellent. Right. There's certainly more complications with twins and our goal is one one healthy baby. Absolutely. It's a bit of the mantra around here at creating a family. <laughs> we we do feel like we say that a whole lot. Yes. Let me break I say it many <laughs> times a day. I bet you say it as much as we do, if not more. Yeah, I bet you do. Um we, you are listening to Creating a Family, and today we're talking about what to do when you first suspect you are infertile, those first steps. Clout now ranks us as the number two online influencer in fertility, uh, or fertility is what they're, they're ranking in. Um, we have a very large presence on the social media, and it would be even better if you would join us. We primarily hang out at Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. One is you can connect with me personally, dawn.davenport1, or you can connect with us on our page, which is facebook.com slash creatingafamily, or you can join our really large and really active uh, online support group, which is a closed group on Facebook, and you can access that at facebook.com slash groups slash creatingafamily. On Twitter and Pinterest, we hang out at at creating a family, so you can find us there uh, on with that uh, with that name very easily. Like I said, we are one of the largest, uh, if not the largest, uh, uh, social networks in the world of infertility, and we would love to have you join us. All right, Dr. Lamb, you mentioned IUIs, intrauterine insemination, which is also sometimes called artificial insemination. Should this be the standard second step for most couples or women trying to conceive if they're not having success? Um, you know, Don, it's really individualized. It's often, yes, one of the first steps. Um, but it also it depends for Lisa. on having it. Yes, yeah, it was for Lisa. Yeah. Lisa, how many IUIs did you try? We did three, and um, mostly it was because that was what our insurance required us to do. Um, yep. That's yeah, exactly but we did all what three I was and with injectables. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, with injectables. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Dr. Lamb, if you could talk about that. Uh, Lisa raises a really good point that sometimes it's not. Yes, it should be individualized, but sometimes it is controlled by insurance. Um, uh, can you tell us the uh, what what Lisa meant when she said with injectables or or sometimes without injectables? Yeah, so it's a combination medical treatment for treating fertility issues. That's where an intrauterine insemination is where we put the sperm uh, from the partner or from the donor inside the woman's uterus. And this is uh, often combined with either the oral medications that we were just discussing, the Clomid or the Femara, or with injectable medications that help um, create more than one egg. Um, and that's, those medications are FSH medications that help um, mature more than one egg in a given month to slightly increase the chances of achieving pregnancy. What's the success rate for IUIs generally, and how does this compare to oral meds or to IVF? Right. So it's much lower than you would imagine. It kind of optimizes kind of the natural fertility. It gets the egg and the sperm as close together, but it doesn't increase the chance as much as you would think. It kind of brings you back up to your natural fertility from when you first started trying. So it's very age-dependent. Someone who's in our 20s or early 30s, it's about 15 to 20% per month. 
but that by the time you're 40, um, it's around 5% per month. So it's really the cumulative success rate of doing it several months in a row where we see the best success rates. Um, or that makes it worth doing. That cumulative success rate of trying it three or four months is what approaches the success rates we see with IVF. And if you get to avoid the more expensive and invasive treatments, that's certainly our preference when you're looking at creating a family. But a lot of it depends on having enough sperm and having tubes that are open. And a lot of patients yeah. aren't able to start with those early things. And some patients don't even need the insemination piece of it. They just need an ovulation induction agent. So there's a really individualized approach to looking at that. Okay, that's an excellent point. Samantha, we're going to back up here and talk about you're trying. A patient is trying. At this point, she's not a patient. A woman uh, is trying to get pregnant. What are some things that she can do just in her lifestyle in her diet, in things that she's doing every day that could maximize her fertility um, and give her the best chances uh, of, of getting pregnant without having to uh, seek treatment? And that's an excellent question. And actually, one of the things that we do have in our program is an, a tool that can help women to do these kind of things, and it's called an activity tracker. And in our activity tracker, both the woman and the fertility tracker, ha- I'm sorry, and the fertility navigator have an opportunity to schedule and keep track of the things that they are doing to optimize their fertility. And it can be simple things like, I'm going to make a healthy meal today. Or I'm going to find a way to do something for myself. I'm going to go to a yoga section, or I'm going to meditate, or I'm going to go for a walk today, or I'm going to take some time for myself, whether it's I enjoy scrapbooking, so I'm going to make sure that I'm doing that because it's helping me to manage my stress, or I'm going to minimize and try to work towards quitting smoking. But it's also really important that women speak to their doctors about this because their doctors are really going to be able to work with them to make sure that they're doing things to optimize their health, to make sure that they're working towards making their bodies and their minds as healthy as possible to optimize their fertility. Every woman is different, and so every woman is going to need to work together with their fertility navigator and with their doctors to really optimize their fertility. But we have a lot of tools that we can help them with and, you know, a lot of different options that we can work with them to try to make sure that they're doing everything that they can do to make sure that their bodies are as healthy as possible on this journey. Exactly. And that's and everything everything that you can do uh, on your own, uh, you should do. Why not? It, it, if, if for no other reason, it gives you a feeling of control. But, but also, we know that there's good evidence that there are specific things that you can do that do or that you may be doing that may be impairing your fertility. So learn about them so that you can avoid them at this at uh, at this really important stage. Dr. Lamb, what should people expect? Let's demystify this. Uh, what should people expect in their first visit to an infertility clinic? Because quite frankly, most people are pretty darn nervous um, for, a, for a host of reasons, um, not the least of which is the cost and the fact that this is an alien environment for them and the fear that they will never become a parent. All of those you know, combine to make this a fairly stressful situation. So what should they expect on their first visit? So a patient's first visit at Pacific Northwest Fertility info, um, involves meeting with a provider and just getting um, a his, getting to know each other, making sure they feel comfortable, valid, you know, letting them know that they're not alone, that this, there's a lot of people going through this, you know, listening to their cycles and getting to know their medical history and. Um, and then oftentimes we talk about testing and what the testing is that's available. Certainly none of it's required. And it's just a discussion, and, and it's very empowering for patients to learn um, about what their options are and what their tests, uh, you know, what tests are available to them and what these tests cost and whether the tests are covered by insurance. Um, so those are all things we try to cover at that initial visit. But you're right. I think that's one of the biggest hurdles, and that's where this fertility navigator uh, system that Sharing's doing has been so great because that's so hard for patients to just pick up the phone. I hear it all the time. It's so hard to make that first appointment and come in and mm-hmm. talk about these sensitive issues. It's almost as if by talking about it, you're making it real, and, and you right. don't want this to be real. You know, <laughs> You would prefer this not to be real. 
Uh, Lisa, this has been a while for you, but you and you said when you when we were first talking that you had to be you needed a push, an impetus to get you. What was what was it that was holding you back? Um, what made it hard to reach out and make that first appointment for you? I think, like you said, it's just making it real. You know, I mean, I work in the medical field and I see what you know, facing denial is like every day, but even knowing what that can do to treatment, I just, you know, it's, it's when, once you're living it, it's, it's a different story. So I think mm-hmm. that for me it was, oh, well, well, my doctor said for most women it's fine. Maybe if we just try a little bit longer, you know, or maybe, you know, maybe all those people are right if I just relax, which is, you know, of course <laughs> not true, but, but that's what yeah. everybody tells you, you know. So you kind of yeah, think, exactly. well, maybe I'm just doing it wrong and it should be just fine and I shouldn't be worrying so much, you know. So I think I just needed somebody, family, friends to say, you know, why don't you just go check it out? It's not going to hurt anything to just go check it out and see. And so I just I just needed a push from people I trusted, I think, to just mm-hmm. say, you know, just going in to see somebody doesn't mean you have to have IVF. It just means you're presenting all the facts and seeing if there's something you need to be more concerned about or not. What we tell people is that no one's making any decision for you. All you're doing is getting information. Information is power. So get the information, and the decision is still yours. No one's going to force you. No one's going to pressure you. You just need information. So that's why you go the first time, is to find out what your options are. And one reason that I think, in addition to the becoming real and, and, and just the fear of the unknown, another thing people are afraid of, quite frankly, is what this is going to cost. Uh, Samantha, can you walk us through some of the options patients have uh, for affording IVF, if that's what's recommended. And as we've all said, it may or may not be uh, the preferred treatment. But if it is, uh, it is certainly the more expensive of the, of the oral IUI, uh, IVF in that, uh, in that sequence. Uh, it is the more expensive. So what are some options that patients, that different clinics have for making it more affordable, assuming that they don't have insurance? And let's keep in mind that some people do have insurance. Absolutely, and insurance is often one of the first options that patients will go to. There are some states that require some sort of insurance coverage, so that is obviously the first route that a lot of patients will go. But um, oftentimes asking the clinic for help is one of the first steps that you'll want to do. A lot of infertility um, treatments may require payment up front, but a lot of the offices will offer a payment plan, and there is often even a reduced rate if you purchase some sort of an IVF package. So it's really great to talk to the clinic first. And a lot of the clinics may even have some sort of a financial expert where there may even be just an appointment where you go in and talk to their financial expert and see what it is that they have to offer because they know how expensive this can be and they want to work with you. They want you to be successful and to be able to come out of the entire experience with the child. So they really do have a lot of financial counseling options on site more often than not. So there are also some financial options that you may be able to do, such as a shared risk plan at centers where they may be able to say um, you buy so many so many um, IVF cycles, and so they have an outcome-based fee schedule plan or a money-back guarantee plan, and you really have to talk to the, to the facility and see what it is that they do. So they, they do um, a refund, if you will, uh, if it's unsuccessful. And so this depends on the, the specific clinics, and so you do have to contact each clinic and see what, if any, type of this this plan that they do often. Um, There are also some infertility financing plans, and the Resolve website has compiled a really great list of financial aid and products that are available to help pay for reproductive health medical treatments and medications. So if you visit the resolve.org, they have 
a great list of resources that you should check out and see um, if any of those are right for you. There are also some nonprofit organizations that do have grants and scholarships that are available for infertility treatments. And uh, we can also help women to prepare for financial discussions with their insurance providers when they are in our program. It's one of the things that we really um, are well prepared to handle in the My Fertility Navigator program. We have a list at the Creating a Family website and our A to Z infertility resource page of uh, the, all the grant organizations and information on the specifics of that grant, um, so you can access that. It's under our affording IVF uh, section. Another thing I would add is that I personally find insurance and reading insurance policies the equivalent of ripping out a toenail. I, I just find it so <laughs> difficult and so confusing. And and so I, I another thing that most clinics can offer is they can help you walk through your insurance policy to find out what will be covered and what won't be covered. Uh, and it's just it's a good it's a good if for no other reason that should get you into a clinic for your first appointment just so you can have somebody. <laughs> help you figure out your insurance uh, when it comes yes. to uh, yeah, infertility treatment. So I think that's another really valuable thing. All right, we have a question. Uh, and this, Dr. Lamb, I think this one would be best for you. This is from Rochelle. She said, I've had three failed IVF cycles at the clinic closest to me. I'm beginning to wonder if it's time to switch clinics or get a second opinion. Is it the clinic or is it me? And do I just need to accept that it's not going to work? Um, I'm glad she asked this question because we don't get it terribly often, but, but I, the whole idea of when should you seek a second opinion or when should you, when should you change a clinic, uh, thoughts on that? Right. I think it's never too early to talk to someone else and get another opinion. You know, there's a lot of ways to create a family, and it's never too early to step back and say, okay, am I on the right path? Am I doing everything that I want to do when I'm trying with my own eggs? Do I feel comfortable where I am? Um, and stepping back and looking at all your options each step of the way, whether it be with your current physician or with another physician, I always encourage patients to get second opinions. You want to feel like you're doing everything you can to meet your goal of building a family. And um, once you've tried several times at a clinic, I will even tell, you know, encourage patients to get a second opinion. If they're going to try again with their own eggs, then they should use those resources um, to try at a different lab. There's differences between clinics, and some patients need different things, and everyone is different. And sometimes having that discussion, even if you go back to your current doctor, um, just gives you new ideas of other things to try or other options that might be available to you that you hadn't thought of before um, in ways to build families. Uh, yeah. Now, I think you should tell her there's no. It's never too early to to have the discussion and feel like you're doing everything you can. You know, we you know, did. I had, to, I had to switch. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I ended up having to switch clinics after two failed IVFs. Um, you know, and I'm listening to Dr. Lamb and Samantha talk about, and you talk about all of these resources, and I'm wishing that I had those because. Although I went to the clinic that was closest to me, it ended up being not the right fit. And all of these things that you're saying that you, you feel empowered and the financial assistance helps so much, I didn't have any of that in the beginning. And once we switched clinics, all of that was in place. But after my second IVF cycle, you know, my doctor actually said, I don't know what else to do. I guess we're just going to have to put in more eggs next time. And it was at that point, or we're going to have to transfer more embry embryos next time. And it was at that point that I thought, there really has to be something else. And so I had told him that we were going to seek a second opinion, and he actually gave me a couple of clinics to look at, and, um, and I did, and that's when I was able to do my research. Um, and once I switched clinics, my new physician, I mean, everything was so wonderful, felt empowered, and they tailored my plan to be for me and for my disorder and based on what had happened in previous cycles. And that's how I was able to get pregnant was because I had that individualized care. So I think Good. getting a second opinion is so important if things aren't no, going the way. If your gut says to, to do something else, do something else. And what I hear both Dr. Lamb and you, Lisa, saying is that a good doctor is not going to be angry or get their feelings hurt. We did a survey, and this has been a number of years ago, of our uh, online community, and asking 
why the why they how long it took for them to how long did they stay at their gynecologist before they moved uh, to a uh, reproductive endocrinologist and for those people who had stayed over a year we asked the follow-up question is why did you stay why did you not switch sooner and one of the to me it was fascinating for uh, I think it was I'd have to go back and look but I believe it was the top or the second top I think it was probably the second top reason that people gave for not leaving their gynecologist was they didn't want to hurt their gynecologist's feelings they they had a relationship with this person they they just they thought their, that their gynecologist would be angry with them or or hurt if they if they left uh, and and Dr. Lamb, what I'm hearing is that that that's not something that doctors are going to feel, or maybe it is, and this is something that you don't feel. Oh. I don't know what is it. Yeah. yeah, ideally we don't feel it. Like we really want, you know, I want my patients to be successful so badly. Uh, we'll do anything we can to make them help them. You know, I'll often call a doctor or write up a summary of what they've done before to pass along with them. Like, you know, this is what we've been doing. You know, what other ideas do you have? And that just helps them. Um, get more care, get other ideas, you know, is there something else that you would think about doing in this situation? And we do that internally already. This is already happening at IVF clinics. If someone's not getting pregnant, there's meetings where the doctors discuss the cases and what else could we try? And going externally for that is always okay. And we, you know, we've the goal is to get pregnant, and we all want that to happen, whether it's here with me or across the street with, you know, our colleague. And here's the thing. If your gynecologist is also an obstetrician, you're going to be coming back to them. You know, hopefully you're going right. to get pregnant, They're and then you're going back to them. Yeah, so... That's yeah. the other thing to think about is that yeah. if they're yeah. if they're an obstetrician as well, then you're you're going to to end up back there as well. You are listening to Creating a Family talk about infertility and adoption, and today we're talking about. Uh, so you think you may be infertile? Now what? Creating a Family primarily keeps in touch with our community through our weekly e-newsletters. We have one specific to infertility and one specific to adoption. You choose which one you want or both. Uh, We let you know about the latest developments in infertility or adoption as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topics. Uh, You can submit questions, and some of the questions that we received today came from people who found out about the show in advance through our newsletter. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter at any page of our website, creatingafamily.org. It's in the top right-hand side. Samantha, you had mentioned at the beginning that uh, one of the common myth is that infertility is a woman's problem, and it most assuredly is not. However, one of the things that we hear from our audience in our community, online community, is that men are often much more resistant um, to either getting help or to even um, having the initial assessment done. So this, I don't know if this is a question for you, Samantha, we'll start with you and then we'll switch over to Dr. Lamb. But uh, what is the, if a couple is having trouble getting pregnant, uh, what should they do from the male standpoint at the very beginning? Oops, Samantha, have we lost you? No, okay. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Ahead, I'm sorry. I'm still. I wasn't sure if you were asking me or if you were speaking with the doctor. So, no, um, absolutely, this is one of those things uh, where if a couple is heading towards getting tested, then absolutely the male and the female sh- can go together towards that first exam and getting tested. Because as we now know, infertility can be caused by either the male or the female, and so both should definitely go into that first exam together, and they can both be tested because there are several things that can affect fertility on the male side. It can be sperm motility or mobility, and so it's, it, and it can even be, and again, doctor, I'll defer to you on this, but we definitely want the males to get tested as well as the females so we can figure out where the infertility is, is coming from. Dr. Lamb, yeah, one I of think my that's... pet peeves is when I hear of a couple who has been in treatment for uh, this happened not all that long ago in our on our support group that they had been in treatment for over a year, and the male sperm he had never done a sperm analysis. Um, how common is that? That just seems unbelievable to me. 
Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and Sam's advice is excellent. I think uh, when you go in together, it's it's um, it's a project that you work on together. It's not just a female issue. Um, and you're right, it is a sensitive topic, and there are some men that prefer not to get tested. And I do spend time, you know, telling telling men why it's so important and you know we you do a history for the male partner too and you know what are his medications that could affect sperm and does he have problems with erection or ejaculation and you know you have to be able to have sex to have a baby and having that discussion you can't just have one side of it and so it is important for the male to get tested and it's one of the most inexpensive tests that we do and it's one of the tests that's most likely to be covered by insurance and Mm -hmm. a third of the time it's abnormal so there's really no reason not to test the male at, along with the female partner. We have exactly, and I would like to interject, I, if, I can, sure. if I may, I would like to interject here also. In the My Fertility Navigator program, we are more than happy to speak with both the male and female partners oh, as far as letting them know about the testing procedures and any questions that either partner may have. We're more than happy to speak with okay. both and get them more comfortable with those initial appointments and any ongoing support that either partner may need. We received an anonymous question uh, about, is it possible, it's fairly long, so I'm going to summarize it, but basically, is it possible to collect the semen from uh, without having to, do, uh, to ejaculate at the clinic? Is it possible to do it either at home, or even is it possible to collect in a condom through intercourse? Dr. Lamb? Yes, that's, um, it is possible, and that is an option. I like to talk to them about about it first because when it's collected at home or collected in a condom, it's more likely to be abnormal. And if that's the case, then I'm going to ask them to repeat it um, in the office. So certainly it's uncomfortable, but the thought of doing it twice is enough to usually get the male partner to do it um, the correct way the first time. <laughs> that's, that, that is uh, actually yes, a very that's effective a, way, yeah, to get them to go if ahead the, and if do that's it their the only option, Yeah, if that's their only option, then that's what we go for. It's okay. Making sure they have sperm is really important, and if they can only do that at home, that's okay. Yeah, we'll take what we can get, but <laughs> but let's really think about this. All right. right. Um, Lisa, coming back to you, um, from the standpoint of infertility, uh, were you able to find support to help you help you deal with the emotions and the stress and the so many people report feeling so darn alone um, and, and isolated when they're struggling with their fertility. Did you feel that, and were you able to find support? You know, initially I absolutely did because it's hard to know where to turn to find support, but it is out there. You know, I mean, first, of course, you want to find support in your partner because you're walking this journey together. Um, but outside of your relationship with your partner, there there's, I was very heavily involved in the blogosphere. There are tons of blogs out there, people who are sharing your experience, and some of those women are still my friends in real life. Um, so I've met mm-hmm. lots of wonderful women that way. Um, the Resolve message board is great. You can post things, get feedback, just meet, new, meet people who are sharing this experience with you, and family and friends. I mean, I had people step up that I didn't expect to, and that was really, really wonderful to have people who really know you to be able to talk to. Um, so they're out there. It's, it's hard to find them, and you, you have to let yourself be vulnerable um, to be able to find that, but it's so, so important. I, I can't imagine going through infertility treatment without having people to talk to. Yeah, I, I would totally agree, and I think that it, if for no other reason you don't feel like an anomaly, you feel like, okay, I'm not the only person in the world who is going through this, and you have somebody who can laugh over the, you know, getting your husband into the clinic, you know, if we will periodically uh, have those type of questions posted, and, you know, and then other women can talk about it, and I'm going to share Dr. Lamb's advice about, yeah, tell them that they may well have to do it twice if they won't do it at the clinic, so... You know that's a yeah. So it's a just a it's it helps you both get information and also feel less alone. Um, we also have a question on miscarriage, and, and basically what she's asking is uh, is multiple miscarriages considered infertility? 
because as she says, I'm not having trouble getting pregnant, I'm having trouble staying pregnant. So Dr. Lamb, let's talk about miscarriages and at what point is a miscarriage classified as repeated, recurrent miscarriages classified as infertility? Yeah, so this is certainly a subpart, a sub, a part of the fertility journey and a part of the fertility process. As reproductive endocrinologists, uh, we have a specialty in also treating the patient with reoccurrent loss. And sometimes, you know, it's often worse than the fertility uh, piece of this. The, the inability to continue a pregnancy and the repeated loss is just devastating emotionally. Going back to, like, Sam's, like, emotional support, these are patients that need it even um, just as much or more than um, fertility patients. And they uh, should also seek care from a reproductive endocrinologist because there are things that we can do and tests that we can do um, to help them um, achieve their goal of having a baby. At what point is a miscarriage, and because when you have a miscarriage, everyone says it's normal, everybody has them, which in fact it is a fairly normal process. I mean, a lot, we now that we can detect pregnancies at a very earlier stage, we now understand how, how really common it is. But on the other hand, at some point it's not normal. So uh, what, what, what distinguishes a miscarriage that's just a, just a typical, I guess there's no such thing as a typical one, but, but uh, one right. that would be perceived as nothing to worry about versus uh, one that, okay, at this point we need to start looking further? Right. So the medical definition of reoccurring pregnancy loss is defined as three miscarriages um, at any time during their reproductive history. But it's really after that second miscarriage that's become the standard of care of starting the workup and doing the tests. And oftentimes OBGYNs refer their patients to a reproductive endocrinologist. This field is constantly changing. There's always new things to test for, and um, it's really the reproductive endocrinologist that keeps up on that and does that test for these patients. So after two miscarriages, Don, is when we start um, that investigative process. And it might be earlier. You know, if you're already at the end of your fertility window and you're miscarrying, even though that um, it sometimes changes what we do, even though that's most likely due to aneuploidy or abnormal chromosome counts, there's things we can do to help that and make, make the pregnancies more successful with the subsequent pregnancy. So it's not too early to start the conversation, even after one miscarriage. And that's particular for women who are in their later 30s, in my understanding you correctly? Right. Yeah, early yeah. 40s, yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm really glad you pointed that out because age is such an important factor with our fertility in general. So your age truly does change when you should take action and get help or see a, see a specialist. Absolutely. Yeah, I understand that. And we have time for for one last subject, and it's one that I think is so important, and that is seeking help, seeking counseling, seeking therapy, seeking therapy. Um, sometimes just joining a support group online or in person is is plenty, is is enough. But sometimes you need more, and and it's a challenge, quite frankly. Um, and uh, let me we'll start with you, Samantha. I don't know if my fertility navigator uh, is able to find uh, uh, therapists that specialize in the losses associated with infertility, and I think it is so darn important to go to someone who understands infertility and understands the losses associated with it. Um, is that something that, that you guys do at My Fertility Navigator? Well, we absolutely provide emotional support along the fertility journey. We don't specifically have therapist referrals, and we do not replace MDs, so we can't provide any sort of medical advice. So, sure. you know, we absolutely refer women to their doctors for for specific medical-type depression issues, but we also refer women to, to places like Resolve.org for emotional and so, social-type support groups, and we, we really believe in the power of emotional and social support groups. You know, nobody understands what these women are going through more than other women that are going through it. So, you know, we do encourage that. Yeah, but, you know, if a woman is truly going through something where she needs to be under a doctor's care, we would definitely refer her back to to her doctor for that. And generally, if you're what we suggest for people who are looking for a therapist that specializes in infertility, um, the two best places that we have found and we recommend are, one, talk with your clinic, 
oftentimes uh, clinics will either have a mental health professional on staff or they have uh, they know mental health professionals in their community that have experience with infertility. So that's the first place you should start. And, and another exactly. resource yes. that, that people often don't know about, but on the ASRM, American Society of Reproductive Medicine site, they have a committee, the Mental Health Professionals Committee, and those members are listed in uh, on that site. And those are people who not only have an interest, but have an interest uh, in infertility and, and seek additional training and uh, usually are often attending the conferences uh, to get even more training. So there's that's another good resource for people to uh, to utilize. And also, please join the Creating a Family Support Group. It's uh, a closed group on Facebook. Uh, it's large and it's active. And whatever you post, there will be somebody there, I guarantee, who has experienced something similar, and they will chime in and share their advice. Um, we have reached the end of our time, hard to believe. Let me remind our audience that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, please work with your infertility professional. Thank you so much, ladies, for joining us today. Um, I, uh, I, for people who want more information or to get uh, to contact Dr. Lamb, you can go to a Pacific Northwest Fertility's website, which is pnwfertility.com. And we've talked a lot today about My Fertility Navigator, so I suspect that there are a lot of people who will want to access uh, this resource as well. And to do that, you would go to their website, which is myfertilitynav.com slash N-I-A-W. Again, that's myfertilitynav.com slash N-I-A-W. And if you're trying to remember the N-I-A-W, remember it stands for National Infertility Awareness Week, and that will help you uh, remember it as well. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I look forward to talking with you guys next week. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.